It is a uh, great joy for me to be back at St. Albans as your guest preacher. This is an opportunity that I've not had since uh, the Sunday before Jim Quigley returned from his sabbatical three years ago. So it's uh, wonderful to be back with you in, in this capacity. Last week we started on a journey to Jerusalem with Jesus. We're on the road with Jesus and we'll be on that road with Jesus each Sunday of the remainder of the church's year up until the last Sunday in November. And this morning's gospel lesson for me has always been a challenging one. And I think it's probably a challenging one for you. I mean, for us, uh, the, the vast majority of us who live in the Washington DC area, metropolitan area, and particularly us, for us Episcopalians, the elements of the missionary journey that is described today in, in uh, this gospel amount to an audacious if not totally ridiculous social experiment. Because which of us would be willing to go out on the road by ourselves with uh, nothing but uh, the clothes on our back, to go to a stranger's house and to say, peace be to this house and hope to be received there and hang out and eat whatever's offered to us and, uh, and uh, heal the sick and cast out demons. Um, how many of us would be willing to go out and take a venture like that? I mean, back when I was the rector of a church and stewardship season came around in the fall, I couldn't even get volunteers to call on friends and neighbors that they knew and loved to say, hi, let's talk about what's good about the church and won't you give a little bit more this year? I would suggest that to the stewardship committee and they go, you want us to do that? My gosh, much less go out and talk to strangers on the road. Um, I mean, people don't do that in this part of the world, except maybe the members of the Church of the Latter-day Saints or the Jehovah's Witnesses, but even they have been curtailed by the coronavirus pandemic. So I, I found myself focusing on the last part of this uh, uh, gospel lesson in which the, the 70 return with joy and they're excited about the success of their mission and they say even the demons in, in your name even the demons submit to us and jesus smiles at them and says i saw satan fall like lightning from heaven nevertheless don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you and that i've given you this power to tread over snakes and scorpions rejoice that your names are written in heaven what does that mean exactly well i think what jesus is saying is if you focus on worldly success and all the wonderful, mighty things you can do, you're, you're, you're on the wrong track. If you focus on me and being in my company, then your name will be written in heaven, not on earthly things, but on heavenly things. Um, and it's so easy to focus on the earthly things. When I was worried about the comings and goings and the ups and downs of the church where I served, I remember my seminarian years ago gave me a, a little uh, engraved, uh, uh, framed uh, saying that said, we are not called to be successful. We are called to be faithful. I treasured that. And I think that's what the essence of this gospel is about, being, not being successful, but being faithful. I had a bit of a flashback this past week when I was thinking about when I first came into contact with that idea. And, um, it, uh, it was in 1970. I w had transferred from a small college to, to my junior year at Boston University, and I arrived there in September of 1970. And you know what's going on today in the world, where we're, we have uh, the, the, the continuance of the pandemic, we have uh, mass shootings, we have Supreme Court rulings, we have the January 6th Investigative Committee, we have uh, 
shortages and in, in, in supply chains and, and rising prices, and, and you, it goes on and on and on in a deeply polarized nation, uh, divided over many, many things. This is on the eve of the, the great celebration of our country's independence. Well, there was much the same sort of feeling of great anxiety and fear in 1970. If you were around then, you will remember. Uh, in April of that year, President Nixon em, uh, escalated the war in, Cambodia, uh, in, in Vietnam by bombing Cambodia. Student demonstrations all over college campuses, four students killed at Kent State University in Ohio. Um, try and times is what the world is talking about. You've got confusion all over the land. Mother against daughter, father against son. The whole thing is getting out of hand, saying Roberta Flack that year. Folks wouldn't have to suffer if there was more love for your brother. But these are trying times. When I got to BU, I, uh, there was a sense of great fear and anxiety in the air. The FBI's wiretapping all of our phones, somebody said. There was talk of a revolution coming in which the mighty would be toppled and the lowly would be lifted up. Um, in most of the classes that I attended that year in, in the College of Liberal Arts building, there was a bomb threat called in almost every day, and we were evacuated out onto the streets. I took one of my midterm exams there. There were rising racial tensions with the advent of the Black Panther Party after Martin Luther King had been assassinated two years earlier. It was a time of great fear and a time of great anxiety. And I must confess in those days, I didn't have any kind of spiritual anchor in my life. I had fled the conservative evangelical ethos of, of the church where I, that I grew up in in North Carolina, and I was kind of adrift. There were two groups that were kind of vying for my attention in those days. One was the, was the Campus Crusade for Christ. Those folks were not scared of talking to strangers. They would come right up to you at, if you were having breakfast or having coffee in the, in the student union or whatever, and they would start talking to you. They were unremittingly cheerful. And after about, and after about 10 or 15 minutes, they would say, have you found Jesus? And I always snarkily wanted to say, I didn't know he was lost. But, but, um, but be that as it may, I, I couldn't, as, as charming as they were, I couldn't find myself uh, getting into that because I'd fled from their kind of theological constructs. On the other side of things was a group of people that showed up about three times a week on the campus who, who came bursting out of a large uh, passenger van. They were dressed in saffron robes and they had Converse all-star sneakers and shaved heads and some of them were South Asians and some of them were, were, were young white American kids. They were dancing in the street and chanting, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. They were the members of the Society for Krishna Consciousness, which was flourishing in those days. It still exists, I've discovered, but uh, they don't go out and dance in the streets and in cities and chant anymore. But um, they were unremittingly cheerful too. They were always trying to invite me to have a copy of their very glossy magazine called Back to Godhead. And um, and uh, uh, I didn't find myself wanting to jump out of a van and, and dance and chant, so I didn't go with them. But, uh, but, I, even, but I was majoring in philosophy and religion at the time, and I, I, I was taking a course called the Religions of the East, um, Introduction to Eastern Religion. And one of the books that we read in that class was the Bhagavad Gita. And... The Bhagavad Gita happened to be the Bible of the Hare Krishna movement. Uh, and, and, and what I remembered from that 
that book is what uh, Jesus reminded me of in, in this gospel lesson this morning. If you've never read the Bhagavad Gita, very briefly, it's a conversation between two people, between Arjuna and Krishna. And Arjuna is a commander of an army. He's a, on the eve of a great battle that he's going to lead his army into. And he's nervous. He's scared. He's uh, doubtful. And Krishna, who represents the embodiment of God, says to him, why are you scared, Arjuna? What is troubling you? Are you scared that you're going to die tomorrow? Well, don't be afraid. We're all going to die at some time or other. And are you afraid of success or failure? You're looking to the wrong thing in your life. What you should be focusing on is God. Focusing not on the success or failure of your venture, but on God. And you will, and you will make a new discovery that all these worldly attachments are, are just phantoms, they, that God is what is important. And, and I, I reread the Bhagavad Gita this past week just to re-familiarize myself with it. And there's a section in it that talks about, about prayer and meditation and that one should turn away from the worldly distractions and simply say the sacred word, which in the Bhagavad Gita is Om for God, and, uh, and, and, and use that kind of pattern of prayer. And, you know, I didn't find a real spiritual anchor in my life for some time. But I always remember that, to focus on being faithful to God, not successful. And it was years later when I finally found my pathway into Christianity in a full and enriching way that I began to look at contemplative prayer and began to realize that people that wrote about contemplative prayer, such as John Main and Thomas Keating, who talked about centering prayer, said the same thing that the Bhagavad Gita was saying, was that if you're going to pray, just try to find quiet time, and if you're being distracted by the many cares and worries of the world, say whatever sacred word is yours so that you can be drawn back into the presence of Christ and, uh, and know that that is where you belong. Um, and when I had the opportunity to meet Thomas Keating a number of years ago at, at his monastery at Snowmass, I was uh, interested to hear him say, the main thing I'm interested in right now is interfaith dialogue. Um, I, with, with, with other religious faiths, and he said, the last evolutionary hurdle for all of humanity is, is this tribalism that we have to get over, of being us and them, we and they, us against them. Uh, he said, if we can be lifted out of that by becoming centered in God, we, we can have a new beginning as people. Uh, that really resonated to me. So I, I thought about this all this week when Jesus said, just rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And I remembered that 25 years ago when I first met my spiritual director, at the end of our first meeting together, she looked at me and she said, John, are you going to go for God? That was a startling question for me. Are you going to go for God? And I've thought about that probably most every day the rest of uh, the, the, the last 25 years. I confess sometimes I haven't been going for God. Sometimes I've been caught up with worldly success or failure or uh, lust for power or greed or whatever. And uh, sometimes I've said to God, I need a small vacation right now. Can I, can I take some time off? But yet that question still resonates in me. Are you going for God? And what might that look like? What might that look like to have your name written in heaven? I'm a baseball fan, an inveterate fan, and I've noticed sometimes when uh, particularly Latino ballplayers will get up to, to the plate to bat, they will cross themselves. Uh, 
And I used to think that that meant that they were praying to God that they could hit a home run or they could uh, win the game with a walk-off single or something. And uh, that's a cynical way to think about it because it reminds me of a cartoon that I always treasured in the New Yorker a few years ago where God is in heaven looking one direction. And these angels are behind him coming up saying, don't you hear the concerns of the flood victims down the, below in the valley? Uh, they need your help. And God is saying, oh, I'll get to them later. I'm helping this guy sink a foul shot right now. Um, the, uh, but I realized that, that what these players are doing when they cross themselves is that they are actually, I, whatever I do, success or failure, I offer my life to you. Uh, take my life and let it be consecrated unto thee. And think about it, people who get into the Hall of Fame who are 300 hitters, they have a failure rate of 70%. So, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's what baseball is all about. What does it look like when we begin to focus on our names being written in heaven? Think of a, just a couple of examples that, that, that came to me. One is a, a paragraph that I've always treasured from an article I read years ago written by a noted family therapist named Thomas Fogarty, who practiced in New Rochelle, New York. This article was called on, on Emptiness and Closeness. And he wrote this one paragraph that just stuck with me for, for, for years. He said, there's a group of ministers in New York who go down to the Bowery one night a month. They visit bars, they give small change to people who will probably use it for drink get involved in family problems that the most capable therapists would not influence in 20 years. They are not fools, and they realize they will get little or no change. One wonders why they pursue such seemingly impossible problems. One minister said, when you walk into the Bowery by yourself, you can literally touch the bitterness and loneliness of every person there into their embittered lives, we at least bring five or 10 minutes of connectedness. And I think that makes it worthwhile. Rejoice not in your success, but that your names are written in heaven. I also thought about what Jim Quigley told us about last week when he said that he had made a decision to be more loving and promptly after that walked out of his house one morning and encountered a man who was down on his luck who had a sign around his his neck that said, need food, and how Jim befriended him, and they walked together to the local police station where he was trying to make a property claim while Jim walked to the giant uh, uh, to go shopping and uh, came back uh, because the man had said, I could use a gift card. Came back not with a $25 card, a $50 card, but a $100 gift card for food and gave it to him. And the man smiled and said, God bless you, you made my day. We're called to be ambassadors of the coming kingdom of God. And could it be that in these small ways, it will be forgotten in the sands of time, that, that these small things are what is actually keeping this whole crazy world from teetering off its axis. It's keeping this whole nation from completely blowing apart. I want to close by saying that as we come to the celebration of our country's independence in this time of great anxiety, this time of great fear, I have a faith that things will get better. That, that just as they did in, in, after 1970, the Vietnam War ended, President Nixon resigned. The nation kind of came back into a cultural convergence for a period of time, and it was a lot calmer. 
Unfortunately, it's centered mainly around bad disco music and leisure suits that were made out of synthetic fabric. But, but nonetheless, I believe that we can have a new birth of freedom in this country and that that government of the people, by the people, and for the people will not perish from the face of the earth. It comes about through faithfulness, through these little ways in which we are being ambassadors of Christ, because that's part of our baptismal covenant. Whether we wanted it or not, we sign up to it over and over again when we renew our covenants. We're called not to be successful, but to be faithful. And I invite you in this time of silence that traditionally follows the sermon to consider how you in your life right now are called to go for God. How you in your life are called not to be successful, but to be faithful. How you in your life can rejoice that your name is written in heaven. In silence, let us pray.